Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of BatChat. We're currently between series here on BatChat, but given recent events and the attention that bats are getting in the press, we decided a bonus episode was called for. Before we get started, we hope all of our listeners are staying safe and are enjoying seeing their local bats in the evening from the comfort of your own homes. On the 23rd of March 2020, 10 Downing Street broadcast a public announcement to the British public. The time has now come for us all to do more. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. That was the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing the start of the government's stay-at-home policy, resulting in a change of daily life for us all that we could never have imagined just a few weeks ago. Now, we are recording this on the 6th of May, 44 days into lockdown, and we're doing this over a conference call, so apologies that the sound quality isn't quite as you would expect from Batchat, but like everyone, we're doing the best we can with the situation. We'd like to point out that all facts are correct at the time of recording, but as you'll hear during this episode, this is a fast-changing situation. We've got two guests joining us to tell us whether bats really have changed the world forever, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and their background in bats and infectious diseases. And they are... Tom August. I did my PhD studying coronaviruses in bats in the UK. Uh, from 2008 to 2012. And that was off the back of the first big uh, outbreak of coronavirus, the SARS pandemic in 2002. Uh, I've, for the past eight years, been working at the uh, UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, uh, where I work as a data scientist working with citizen science data and new tech to support conservation research in the UK. Hi, I'm Lisa Wurlidge. I'm Head of Conservation Services at the Bat Conservation Trust. And part of my remit at BCT is lead on bats and diseases. So I've spent a lot of time um, working on things like um, COVID-19 guidance and information for the general public about bats and diseases. So two perfect guests to to get listeners through the the news and, and to find out whether, you know, we've heard a lot in the press that bats potentially are responsible for this i mean is there any truth in that can can one of you just introduce the situation as it stands at the moment and and what we do and don't know um in terms of the direct question are bats responsible that's a really simple answer no 
Humans are responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. Transmission is human to human, and it's human activities that led to the spillover of uh, a pathogen from wildlife into humans in the first place. So, no, bats aren't responsible. So, so Tom, where's this idea that, that bats were the, the original host for, for the current strain of coronavirus? So COVID-19 is a, is a zoonotic disease. It's a disease that come, has originated in a wild animal host and has come into humans. It's a natural event um, that occurs. Um, and typically, you know, that wouldn't spread very far. But given our new sort of global society with air travel and such, these sorts of things can become pandemics much more quickly, which is why um, you're, we're hearing more about them uh, more recently. Now, the SARS pandemic, which was in started in 2002, went into 2003, infected around 8,000 people, killed about 800 people. That, we worked out, originated, the original virus was from a wild bat host. The current virus, or COVID-19, is caused by a different virus, SARS-CoV-2, which is related to the virus that caused the SARS pandemic. Um, and it's reasonable to assume that the original virus, uh, that the original virus for this uh, pandemic also probably came from a wild bat population somewhere. So why are we so unsure? What's what's the missing link that that we need in order to find out whether you know, it's likely that that has come from from a from a bat species. I think the the question we're trying to answer at the moment is which bat species and, and where did it originate. So I think the most closely related um, virus that we have identified is about ninety four percent from a bat in China. To put that in context, um, different patients who have COVID, the virus that they host is like ninety nine point nine percent the same. SARS, this previous pandemic, that's about 80% the same. MERS, which is another coronavirus, is about 50% the same. All of those viruses are in the same group, subgroup of coronaviruses called beta coronaviruses. Um, so that gives you some sort of flavor of, of how related. So that 94% of that most closely related is, is pretty close, um, but it's not, it's not the one. It's not the one we're looking for. And it's important to know where it came from so that we can help to prevent sort of spillover events in the future. I was just going to say, I think it is worth emphasising that it's not the same, but um, to add to what Tom said, because we've had a lot of people saying and using the fact that this similar virus has been found in a species of bat as going, yeah, therefore it's definitely bats. But actually, even if... A, the virus that ultimately led to SARS-CoV-2 originated in bats. SARS-CoV-2 itself has not been isolated from any species other than humans or or cases related to humans, a few domestic um, animals. And that genetic difference is significant. Um, Humans and other primates, chimpanzees, for example, 
are 96% common in uh, 96% of their genome in common, but we are not the same species. So whilst there might have been an origin in bats, it's very likely that the virus that is now causing the pandemic in humans has come through another species or has mutated within humans. And I think it's just important to under, understand that in terms of the, the sort of culture around blaming bats. So just to just to simplify that a little bit, so we're saying that humans and chimpanzees share ninety percent, ninety six percent of their genome, uh, or thereabouts. So clearly, we're not the same species. So we're saying that the original, you know, coronavirus that was in bats is clearly not the same as the one of the human strains, but it's mutated at least once, if not many more times than that in that interim period. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. So I mean. You know the that that particular bat species that that Tom talked about that had that bat cough RATG thirteen um, is Rhinolophus affinis, which its common name is the intermediate horseshoe bat, which is really unhelpful because there's an Australian bat species also called <laughs> the intermediate horseshoe bat. I mean, you know that species was first described in 1823. There are six subspecies of of that particular horseshoe bat, and it's widespread widespread across southern and southeast asia i mean tom what 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 do we know about coronavirus in bats to date we actually know a fair amount because of the original sars pandemic back in 2002 that spawned a whole bunch of research to try and figure out okay where where are these coronaviruses are there lots of them are they do we need to worry about them so quite lots of research groups all over the world started looking for them and uh including myself as part of my PhD. And what we found was that um, actually quite similar to humans, quite a lot of bats have coronaviruses. Humans have lots of coronaviruses. They cause the common cold. So it's perhaps not a surprise that, yeah, bats around the world had coronaviruses. Um, they were quite diverse, and the bats didn't really seem to get that sick from them. And the sort of conclusion from my research was that, yeah, there were some coronaviruses in bats in the UK, but no, they didn't pose any risk to humans. And that was sort of the, that's sort of the general the general picture that, that emerged from that sort of push for research after the original SARS pandemic. So what's changed? You know, you, you said that they didn't necessarily pose a threat. What what is it that's changed to allow the spillover into to humans? So spillovers occur or are, can can be driven by human activity. So for a spillover to occur, you need the disease in the wild animal. And you need contact between that wild animal and usually an intermediate host. So because humans don't have a huge amount of contact with wild animals, um, wild animals have actually more contact with um, peri-domestic animals. So animals that live around humans like cattle or pets or animals in markets and these sorts of things. So zoonoses tend to come through those routes. So that happened with SARS. That's happened with... uh, uh, other previous uh, zoonotic uh, spillover events. Um, so these sorts of environments where we have close contact between wildlife and peri-domestic animals, um, like the sort of wet markets that we've seen in the news uh, that exists in China, these sorts of environments create that, that the conditions favourable for zoonotic transmission. Um, the reason I said that that wasn't really a risk in, in the UK is we don't really have those sorts of environments in the UK. We don't have big contact between wildlife and these sorts of animals. So there's very low risk of zoonotic uh, transmission in the UK. 
That also gives us some insight as to how we might be able to reduce the risk of these sorts of zoonotic spillover events in the future um, by reducing these sorts of um, opportunities for transmission, but also trying to reduce the prevalence of these diseases in the wild host populations. And I'm sure we'll come back to how thing, human activity impacts on those sorts of levels in the wildlife populations. So, so Lisa, I mean, Tom said that the, the UK doesn't have those sorts of environments. I guess, I guess now is the time to talk about wet markets. We've been hearing about wet markets as it's thought that this was the, the possibility of the cause of the spillover. Lisa, can you just describe a wet market and why there's such a high risk environment for, for zoonotic spillover? Yeah, I mean, I've I've never visited one, and I I would probably move away from the term wet market. Um, that term actually, they're pretty much like local supermarkets in a way. I think here, what we're talking about specifically is the trade in live wildlife, and I think it's important to to differentiate between the sort of other things that are being sold at certain markets and this live wildlife trade. So there is this um, this situation. It's exactly as, as Tom describes. Um, and one of the problems that we've seen and one of the routes that spillover events can take place is where you're bringing wildlife into contact with other wildlife or with other um, domestic animals where there wouldn't ordinarily be that contact. And this is what's exactly what's happening at live wildlife markets. So you've got animals that are, that are hunted, that are brought together in very cramped conditions, very unhygienic conditions, lots of species in a small space that wouldn't otherwise be interacting. And when I say small space, I mean small cages where there can be urine and feces, you know, spreading between different species. And so you can see that this is, if you like, a sort of crucible of, of viral um, recombination or the potential, the potential for that. And that's the issue with these live wildlife markets. So what other theories have been suggested and, and why? For, for the origins? Yeah, sorry. So, so some of the some of the early cases in China weren't actually linked to the Wuhan market. Um, so although that's a possible route, it absolutely hasn't been confirmed as the route. And there are there are other potentials. So for example, where agriculture has moved into environments that were um, say forested areas. So anyone who's seen, and I think an awful lot of people during lockdown have watched Contagion, um, the film Contagion. If you don't want to watch the whole thing, bring it up on Netflix or wherever and just go to the end scene and those end scenes in that movie highlight one of the possible routes to spill over really beautifully. It shows some virgin forest that's basically getting chopped down. You have a huge sort of open barn structure going up on that forest for pig farming. And you then see bats coming in, roosting, bats that you know would otherwise be roosting in the forest, roosting above those pigs. And they're feeding and the feeding remains drop and they're urine drops and their feces drop and this gives you um, a sort of route for for spillover because you know just just being in the presence of a bat isn't going to lead to a spillover event um, as Tom's already suggested you need all of these steps there are barriers to these events and what's happening in the last 
I don't know, 60, 70 years, we've seen the number of emerging infectious diseases with zoonotic, so wild animal origins, increasing. And we've seen that increasing because of human actions on our environment. And what we're doing is we're basically reducing these barriers. So we're changing the distributions of potential hosts. We're changing um, the exposure of... um, us and other animals to this sort of these reservoirs if you like um, and all of that means those barriers are coming down and that's leading to more um, emerging infectious diseases so you know human activity is absolutely at the heart of this very nicely answering the next question there thank you for that so, sorry I'm not <laughs> looking perfect. at the questions that's great that was, that was literally <laughs> my next question um, I mean why have so many different intermediate hosts have been suggested you know we talked about that idea that the, the virus has mutated at least once and there's been all sorts of other animals suggested as being an intermediate host which we don't yet know anything from pangolins to civets to mongoose to farm animals why have so many different intermediate animals been suggested because because we don't know what the intermediate animal is probably um i think we're, we're still hunting for it um in the in the sars outbreak it was um civets it's thought to be civets um this outbreak I don't think we know. So, how, I mean, presumably there are scientists around the world trying to pin that down to help us understand how there might be. I mean, presumably, knowing what that intermediate host is gives us an idea of more clues to a, a potential vaccine. You know, I mean, what are scientists doing to try and um, find that intermediate host? So, the, the intermediate host will help us to understand how this spillover event occurred and how it got spread to humans. And that's going to help us to figure out how we prevent this sort of thing happening again. Um, it's, it's, not going to help with, it's not going to help with a vaccine, but it will help us to identify that, that route. Um, I think it's important to differentiate, as, as Lisa's already said, um, that the pandemic is, is human to human. Uh, and, and the way we live our lives uh, in modern society uh, traveling all over the world, living in dense urban settings, all these sorts of things have contributed to that. Um, hunting down the original host and the intermediate host they don't really help us in the moment in tackling this pandemic, but they help us understand what, how it started and therefore allows us to prepare and, and prevent these sorts of things happening again in the future. And I mean, BCT have come out and said that you know, they would like to see wet markets banned, or at least the trade in live animals banned. There's been speculation that potentially that might not work. It might result in them being driven underground, which is more hard to regulate. I mean, Lisa, would it not be better to introduce regulations for such things? What's what's the reasoning behind seeing an, an outright ban in, in the trade of, of live animals? I think regulation can be can be really difficult. Um I think the the issues the, the although it, it's more what's being asked for is a little bit more complex than um, a straight a straightforward ban, but the conditions in a lot of live animal markets are, are really cruel. Um, they do facilitate um, the spread of viruses, the the bringing together of these of these stressed animals, um, and also 
they threaten a whole host of wildlife species. So it's important to understand this in, in, in that context as well. So yes, it is a very complex, it is a very complex issue. Sometimes you need to be calling for, for more to achieve something. And what's really clear is we cannot carry on as is. It, the original um, um, sort of SARS outbreak that um, Tom was talking about back in 2002 was associated with, with a market. That's, we think, how the virus got into palm civets. Um, not all outbreaks are associated with this situation. And indeed, um, the MERS coronavirus, the Middle Eastern, Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, actually isn't connected with bats. It's camels. It's not. It's not a, a animal market in the sense of food. That that's for, for for different purposes. So you know, I'm not saying this is the be all and end all, but it's really important that you know these markets do offer this potential, um, and that needs to be addressed. And and Tom, can bats teach us anything about understanding these types of diseases in more detail? Yeah, interestingly, I, I was revisiting my PhD thesis, um, which seems really relevant now, and perhaps was less relevant at the time that I published it. And uh, there's a bit in there where we looked at um, how the population structure of bats affected their disease prevalence. And I was particularly interested in coronavirus because it was relevant to the to SARS pandemic, which recently occurred. But I was also looking at uh, ectoparasites like mites and ticks, because they're also a directly transmitted disease. And I thought they could be a, a model for, for viruses. What I found in, in Dorbenton's bats, uh, Dorbenton's bats are quite well known for in, during the maternity period when the female is giving birth. The male Dorbenton's bats, the adult male Dorbenton's bats, form bachelor roosts, uh, which are, separate, which are you know, physically separated from, from the maternity groups. And one of the hypotheses for why this was happening was for disease avoidance. The theory being that juvenile bats, the, the newborn bats, are quite susceptible to disease. Um, and so the disease prevalence in that maternity colony is going to be quite high. The blokes stay away, then they have reduced disease prevalence. And that's what we found. And we, we also found that for coronaviruses. So what we're looking at there is social distancing. Okay, So the males are socially distancing themselves from the potentially infective uh, population which in hindsight, that's kind of cool because that's what we're being told to do. So, so there may be other reasons to why bachelor colonies form, but this is what, certainly one hypothesis. And it's quite interesting to think that you know, nature has evolved social distancing to avoid a coronavirus infection. You heard it here first, folks. That's been doing social distancing for a lot longer than we have. Lisa, the IUCN have recently issued some guidance. What is the risk of the human strain of, of the current coronavirus mutating and it jumping back back from human to bats if that happens if it's possible is there a possibility that we could see another white nose syndrome type of event with mass bat deaths because of a new strain of coronavirus that they're not used to well firstly we we don't know that there's a lot of work going on at the moment to understand the risk of human transmission not just to bats but all sorts of other animals including domestic pets um and and wildlife as well so that's that's a piece of work that's very much in action what we what we don't know is at the moment our understanding from other coronaviruses within bats is they don't seem to make bats sick so 
we don't know what would happen should the um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus be able to infect bats. And it's really important to remember that although we tend to talk about bats in the round, there are 1,400 species of bat, and they are incredibly diverse. And we were talking about genetic differences earlier. I think it's worth pointing out our common and soprano pipistrels that we only separated as two species in the 1980s are more genetically different than humans and chimpanzees. So, you know, the, even with species that seem very similar, there are huge differences. So it's really dangerous to talk about bats in the round in, in this sort of thing. Um, so we don't, we, don't, we don't know whether it can move back. The, the, this virus isn't, isn't recognisable from the most similar virus we found in, um, in bats. It isn't the same, um, but it, it's of a group. Um, it's gone through a lot of changes in order to be able to infect humans. Um, so there isn't a strong indication that it's readily going to infect bats, but there is, of course, the potential. And that's why the IUCN statement's been issued. And that's why with BCT's guidance, um, for example, we, we recently issued for bat carers, we want people to take sensible precautions to minimise any risk there might be until we understand things a bit more, until scientists have had more time to, to investigate. And from our perspective, that's things like people taking what are becoming everyday precautions, let's face it, in wearing face coverings, in taking sensible disease risk management precautions. And most people who are regularly handling bats should be doing this sort of thing anyway, because of other disease risks. So, you know, sensible hygiene, wearing gloves, all, all of this sort of thing. Um, so basically those are the main things that we're asking at the moment but as you said right at the beginning this is a rapidly changing situation and all of our guidance in fact even our, our general frequently asked questions type information about COVID-19 carries the, the 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 disclaimer if you like that this information could change and it could change in the next few days it could change in the next few weeks it could change in the next few months you know this is going to be with us for quite a while and it's going to take us quite a while to understand the, the human to animal route, both the route into humans and then any potential route out from humans. Because right now, as Tom said, the focus has got to be on human health. And that's absolutely where the priorities are. So again, in our guidance about people wearing face coverings, we've, we've given instructions on how to make your own if you're, if, you, if you're so minded. And it's really important people aren't taking supplies away from NHS and healthcare providers, etc. And, and we should say we'll put a link to those those garden notes from BCT in the show notes uh, below this, this podcast episode. So, um, so I totally agree uh, with what Lisa said there about we don't really know what the probability of those things are and what effect they would have. As a couple of insights from my PhD research, uh, one was um, we looked at all the bats that had uh, coronaviruses. So the bats that we sampled, um, about 40% of them had coronavirus. And um, they didn't show any effect of this on their health. Um, so that was quite interesting. That was one insight. And the other was that um, each bat species uh, that we sampled that had coronavirus, they had their own sort of lineage of coronaviruses. So their mm. coronavirus was specific to that species. So in a way, you could think of it as like the virus is evolving mm. the bat species. So each bat species has this. And coronavirus. We even sampled one species in two different locations, about 50 kilometers apart, 
and those viruses grouped. So the viruses from one site were grouped together in being close related, and they were more distantly related to another group of viruses from this other location. So they're so sort of also spatially related, which was which is kind of cool. And that, that kind of speaks to the story that you know we have uh, different viruses, coronaviruses evolved, developed for different uh, bat species. But whilst those both might give some indication as to the likelihood of transmission to bats and what impact it might have, we will really don't know because this is a this is a new virus. I guess the only other thing that we've not mentioned that I think it's worth um, highlighting is people who have roosts um, rather in their in their homes. If you're not disturbing your bats, if you're not coming in direct contact with your bats, you know, first of all. SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus disease, this has not been found in, in a bat species. And certainly we don't have, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but we don't, the coronaviruses we found in UK bats aren't that closely related to those that have been isolated from the horseshoe bats in China. Is that right? No, they're not. And they're, and they're not closely related to other human coronaviruses either. So the bats in your house present no risk in terms of COVID-19 to you. Um, and you're perfectly safe having a having a roost in your in your house. Should we expect more of these pandemics in the future? And if so, how do we prevent this from happening again? I don't mind who answers this. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I think pandemics will become uh, more common. And that's as I said earlier, is primarily down to how we now live our lives, our international lives. Um, because zoonoses have always been a feature of, of human history, of, of nature's history, um, but traditionally they would you know, be localized. Now, now when they come to humans, they go global. So yeah, I think pandemics are going to become uh, more common. And indeed, many people have been predicting exactly this event. Lisa mentioned yeah. contagion, for example, yeah. <laughs> which is written by a CDC epidemiologist and based on the Nipah virus. Yeah. Um, so you know, yes, uh, we know these things are going to happen more frequently. In terms of how we prevent those, I think we've we've sort of touched, danced around some of these issues already. For me, there's there's two key elements. There's the, the original spillover event, and then there's the move to pandemic. The move to pandemic, that's all sort of human health. That's all the stuff that you know everyone's talking about, government's talking about right now. Uh, I guess what we want to focus on is that original spillover event. And Lisa's already uh, talked about you know, deforestation um, and, and these sorts of things which can impact on bat populations. And, and in my mind, they do two things. They increase the prevalence in the bat population and they increase the contact between, uh, well, not just bats, any, any, any host as you want to see, uh, and, and their contact with, with humans. So you can imagine you're cutting down uh, some habitat that's used, for example, by bats. That population is then under increased stress, as in they may have to travel further for food. Um, stress, just as in humans, uh, can make you more susceptible to in infection. And so that sort of activity um, can increase prevalence. Because bats might be um, moving further to forage for food, they're coming in increased contact with uh, other individuals. That's going to increase transmission, which may also increase prevalence. If they're traveling further, um, they may also be traveling to uh, more urban areas. Um, or you, know, you can think of like rodents, for example, might be traveling into human dwellings to, to, to find foods. And rodents can be a, a source of diseases as well. So there, it's the increased contact with humans. So there's lots of activities, um, including habitat destruction, um, including the, the ways that we have uh, live markets, 
Um, lots of things that we can change in the way that we live our lives that will help to reduce these sorts of spillover events in the future. So to summarise, if listeners are delivering back talks either later in the year or probably more likely next year now, and a member of the public asks whether bats were responsible for the outbreak, what's the perfect concise answer to give, given our current knowledge? No. How concise would you like? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It comes back to what I said earlier, really. No, no. to take this, you can argue that there's obviously a role, and um, you know, you, when you when you trace what the origins of the virus were, but it is not bats; it is human activity that is causing increase in emerging infectious diseases, that is causing an increasing number of pandemics. It is the way we live our lives. It is the fact that we're not very good, and and I mean this globally, as thinking of things in the round. Um, This is what the One Health approach has has tried to do in recent years, is consider the the link between ecology, biodiversity, human health. And I think we need to be taking that much more seriously and we need to be considering it much more broadly in all aspects of life, in all aspects of development and thinking much more at a landscape scale. That's a a, a common phrase, isn't it, these days in in conservation. But, you know, we need to be thinking much more at at this larger scale about the potential impacts of a whole variety of human activities and ultimately links into climate change as well but are bats to blame no they're not i think if someone yeah so essentially yeah so if someone asks you know are bats to blame lisa's clearly said yeah bats bats are not to blame the, the question is how do we prevent this sort of thing happening mm-hmm. in the future and this is one of these rare occurrences where actually the interests of bats and the interests of humans actually align so Conservation of bats, preserving bat habitat, uh, keeping healthy wild bat populations, great for bats. Also great for preventing spillover events. So it's kind of win-win. Conservation of bats is directly aligned with an ambition to reduce spillover events. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, well said, Tom. That was the closing paragraph of my PhD thesis. <laughs> Brilliant. Your time, your time has come. <laughs> <laughs> and and do you guys have any suggested bat projects that people could be doing at home during lockdown? Ooh, well, yeah, there's 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 quite a few things you can do actually, depending on how batty you, you already are. I mean, one of the things we're encouraging at the Bat Conservation Trust is people to take part in our sunset sunrise survey. Um, and that, although in the past we said to people you need to be wandering around your, your neighborhood, um, we're actually updating that to say you can participate from your own garden. If you don't have a garden, it can be your balcony, it could be leaning out of your window, but not too far, please. Um, you know, just looking, even if you haven't got a bat detector, just looking out at dusk and just after and seeing if you can observe any bats flying around and share that information with the BCT. So you can see all of that on, on our website.
website, and I'm sure, Steve, you can add the, add, add the link. Um, there's other practical things. So if you're looking for um, a crafty activity during lockdown, why not make a bat box? Um, pop up a, a bat box at home. There's instructions again on our website. The Kent Bat Box design is a really great one, nice and straightforward, and, and has a, a good chance of being used if it's, if it's put up in the right place. Um, if you want to start planning for when we're out the other side and we're allowed out to play again, why not go and find the details of your local back group? Get involved, make contact with them. So once they are up and running activities, you can go in and get engaged, hopefully get out and about walk with other folks and learn more, more that way. Um, and I would say finally, for those of you who are listening who are seasoned back workers and have been putting off analysing those 20,000 recordings you made. <laughs> Now's a really good time <laughs> to start work on that. There won't be a better opportunity. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> and my thanks to Tom August from the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and Lisa Wurlich, Head of Conservation Services at the Bat Conservation Trust, for taking time out of their day to speak with me. So, as promised, the links to the various resources mentioned in that interview can be found in the show notes below, including how to find your local bat group, so that you can tell them about the bats you may well be seeing in your gardens during the evening, and we know that they would love to hear about those records. If you're not already subscribed to Bat Chat, consider subscribing. That way, you'll automatically get any further bonus episodes between now and the release of Series 2 later in the year. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you have, please let your friends and family know about our podcast. You can join the online conversation on social media using the hashtag BatChat. Until next time, please continue to stay safe, and remember, one day, life will return to some sort of normality. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.